Uh, today we're going to read one of the um, most well-known chapters in the entire Bible, but we're going to read it in its entirety so that you see the setup um, to John 3.16. Let's share in God's good word together where the Pharisee Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. There was a man of the Pharisee sect Nicodemus, a prominent leader among the Jews. Late one night, he visited Jesus and said, Rabbi, we all know you're a teacher straight from God. No one could do all the God-pointing, God-revealing acts you do if God weren't in on it. Jesus said, you're absolutely right. Take it from me. Unless a person is born from above, it's not possible to see what I'm pointing to, to God's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. A lot of people have asked what my nationality is. Um, I'm half Korean, and I asked my mom today, how do you say demo day in Korean? Today is cheap horoyo. Oh, that's pretty. <laughs> that's good. Thanks, <laughs> Demo day. Demo day. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time, we are in a sermon series called Fixer Upper, as in we all are one. We all need some fixing up and and so we're um, in week four, Fixer Upper. This is our Lent series as we started Ash Wednesday, and we will roll all the way up to Easter, and we celebrate that Jesus is coming, and we're looking at his life from his baptism to his death on the cross to the resurrection on Easter morning. And as you, if, as you follow these sorts of series, what you come to at some point is what they call Demo Day. Will you say that with me? Demo Day. Those walls that you thought would stand, that foundation you thought would work, at some point you go, that's not going to work. That's just not going to work. And, and so the whole thing has to be demolished, whatever that piece is that you were counting on. In trust that the carpenter will rebuild it better, stronger, anew. So you have to trust the demo before you get the new building, the new body, the new temple. And so today, we come to Demo Day. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. Now, I want you to see where we've been over the last three weeks very, very quickly. Week one was this. A transformed life is available to you. Will you say that with me? A transformed life is available to you. And I think part of the things that the church struggles with is we don't believe that anymore. That we, we kind of live the same life we've always lived and we kind of throw some Jesus on top of it or, or maybe some worship or a Bible study now and again, but our life is really not that changed. It's not that much transformed. And we struggle with this. We wonder if a transformed life is really available. And friends, the answer is yes. Yes, it is. But it's going to cost a lot more than you want. It's going to be harder than you think. It's going to take longer than you think. So week two, we looked at Jesus' life uh, and it requires suffering, rejection, and death. Will you say those with me? Suffering, rejection, and death. No wonder people don't do this stuff. I mean, particularly in America, we hate suffering, rejection, and death. But those are the very requirements of a transformed life. Those were the very things that Jesus did. And, and you think about your own life. Anything of note that you've done, um, perhaps like getting through uh, boot camp, they will tell you that took suffering, rejection, uh, in some ways, death to an old way of life. If you've ever been in a, in a serious physical workout routine, it required what? Suffering, rejection, and, and death to sweets or, or death to fatty foods or death to whatever. And the same thing is true if you're getting a graduate degree or you've done anything really important in your life. It requires those things, doesn't it? You've got to say no to something to be able to say yes to something else. And so it's a very difficult thing to be transformed. It takes the best of who we are, the best of our community together, and the best power that Christ comes in to give us to live a new life. 
And then last week we looked that a transformed life takes us outside the walls of the church. When Jesus came to earth, he came to the temple where they knew for thousands of years that this is where God dwelled. That's what they thought. And Jesus comes in and he, he overturns not just the money changers, not just the cattle and the sheep, but the entire system. The whole thing that they had known. The, the entire religious system of the Jews where you had to make a sacrifice on the altar, a blood sacrifice, a burnt offering of a sheep um, or a cattle or doves. And Jesus says, no, the whole, wherever I am, God is. The kingdom of God is at hand, he says. Wherever I am, God is. Now that might be in the temple. But that also might be on the street. It might be here or there. And certainly when the Spirit comes in the book of Acts chapter 2 where we get our name, you can find God anywhere, everywhere. And it's our job to look for him and join him there. That's what the church is. People on the move with God's Spirit in his power for a transformed life, transformed community, transformed world. So, so here's the thing, friends. Um, this is a long tweet, but if, if you're a tweet person, uh, Jesus overturned the entire religious system of his day, moving the locus or the location of God's presence from the temple to himself. So before we go any further this morning, I want to ask you this question. When is the last time Jesus changed your mind about something important? When's the last time Jesus changed your mind about anything? I've actually had people say to me um, that I'm going from church to church And I keep looking for the pastor to say everything that I already believe. Friends, that's to be dead. That's not to have Jesus as Lord of your life. That's you being Lord of your life and hoping that somebody else agrees with you. Seriously, when's the last time Jesus changed your mind? If we're Wolf Brand Chili commercial, I'd say, well, that's too long. Right? And we have, we have to lay ourselves down. To worship is to prostrate ourselves before Jesus, before the cross, and say, not me, Lord, you. What do you want? You change my mind. You tell me the truth. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And whatever you tell me, I'll do. That's obedience. That's what obedience looks like to Jesus. And this is a very important question for me. Because as a pastor, um, it's really tempting to feel like, well, I know. I've been reading the Bible my whole life. I've been studying the scriptures my whole life. Of course I know the answer. Well, that is a dangerous place to be, friends. We want to be lifelong learners, lifelong disciples, lifelong followers, where Jesus changes our minds. And the way we understood Jesus as a three-year-old is not the way we understand Jesus as a 30-year-old or a 60-year-old. We're supposed to grow in this. And from time to time, that's going to require us to change our thinking, change our mind. The question is, what is God talking to you about these days? So we come to Demo Day. And we come to this setup to the, to the greatest scripture, the, the gospel in a gospel in John 3.16. It's a setup as an answer to the questions that all religious people have. And that is, what is Jesus doing? So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and his mind is blown. His mind is blown. Everything that he thought he knew as a leader of the Sanhedrin is now at the door. And he doesn't know what to do with it. So he comes at night. And in this conversation that we're about to see, it's not Jesus talking to Nicodemus as an individual in the way that we we would think about it. We are having a leader of an entire religious group coming to Jesus and trying to figure it out. So Jesus is talking to someone who is going to talk to a whole bunch of other people. Does this make sense? So it's not just, hey, we're having coffee. It's, I really need to talk to you. I really need to back channel this. And I really need to figure out what's going on. 
And Jesus talks to him knowing what's at stake. So the scripture says it like this. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, leader of the Jews. And he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus answered him, right. Right. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. We, that's where we get our term born again. Now, at this point, one of the things that John, the writer of the Gospel of John, likes to do is he he has Jesus use words that can mean two things. It can mean born again or born from above. It can mean either one. The Greek word can. So Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can can you climb back up in your mama's womb? That's gross. And and Jesus answers, no, 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 no. You're, You're not understanding. Now, the reader can understand, but, but Nicodemus does not yet. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit, water of your mother, but the spirit of God. It takes both. What is born of the flesh is flesh. We know about that, Jesus says. But what is born of the spirit of God is spirit. And he's going to go on and say in the scripture that if you look at a baby, you know that that baby's body, the flesh, is going to change, but that's not who the baby is. There's a spirit that lives in that baby, and you can know a person, whether they're three or five or 50 or 100, by their spirit, not their body. There's two sorts of things going on. One is a physical birth and a physical growth. The other is a spiritual growth. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, as a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have been the most devout of Jews. He would have been the most learned. He would have known Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy cold. He would have had it memorized. All five books known as the Torah. And Nicodemus was a leader of leaders, a member of the Sanhedrin, the top 70 smartest leaders of the Jews. And so Jesus asked Nicodemus to let go of what he knows in order to receive what Jesus has to offer. Now, I don't know about you, but my experience is this. That when I come up to someone and they're really, really, really pushing their point about what they know about Jesus, they're not very open to what he has to offer. We're to hold our relationship with Jesus humbly and lightly and to say, what are you going to teach me today, Spirit? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to love? How do I look more like you? Jesus asked Nicodemus to let go of what he knows in order to receive what Jesus has to offer. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of where the Spirit moves. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, look at the wind, friend. Look at the wind. It moves. and You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. You see the trees. And that's how it is with the Spirit. That's how it is with the people of God. We are wherever the Spirit is. Source Nicodemus, he says, well, what do you mean by this? How did this happen, this born-again born from above and friends this is what we do isn't it nicodemus asks what we ask i mean it's a legitimate question he's like hold that's this doesn't match up with what i know that this it's not fitting in my box as jesus so hold on a minute and jesus says you're a respected leader of israel and you don't know these basics listen carefully i'm speaking sober truth to you i speak only of what i know by experience i give witness only to what i've seen with my own eyes there's nothing secondhand here no hearsay yet instead of facing the evidence and accepting it you procrastinate with questions now i'd submit to you that every husband whose wife has asked him to do a honeydew project knows exactly what this means Hey, can you fix the so-and-so? 
Now, now what is that again, dear? This is the quintessential move of all people. When we know exactly what's being asked of us, and we pretend that we don't because we don't want to do it. Isn't this true in your life? Somebody says, you need to do this. You're like, well, exactly what, what do you mean by that? We want to put that off as long as we can. And Jesus says, if I tell you things that are plain as the hand before your face and you don't believe me, you don't believe that, what use is there in telling you of the things you can't see, the things of God? You see, Jesus is looking at our hearts. He wants to know if we'll be faithful in the small things so that he can offer us bigger things. And until we're faithful in the little things, the bigger things don't come. And that's just smart management, isn't it? If any of you are in management, you know this. Somebody thinks they can handle a really big project. Do you give them a really big project? No, probably not. You're going to give them a little project. You see how they do. And if they do well, you'll give them another one and another one and a bigger one. Friends, Nicodemus' problem is all of our problem. And that is instead of facing the evidence that you're blank there of our situation, we procrastinate with questions and questions and questions. And Jesus comes to earth. He comes from heaven to earth. And there's a big question for the people in the first century Palestine and for us today. And here's the thing about Demo Day. God has come into the world at a certain location, a certain time, and it's a person named Jesus. And there's nothing we can do about that now. But there's a decision to be made. And Demo Day comes to all of us. The question is, will we choose Jesus and know the day that our life ends and he rules? Or will it happen to us like this? Like a sinkhole. Where everything's fine and you just disappear. You don't really see much. You might, you know, be in your living room. Oh, that the Corvette thing really got you, right? It's like, oh, all the Corvettes down the hole. Or our home or our lives. And you say, well, that's not even fair. You don't even see that. It all happens underneath the ground. You don't, you don't even know that. Or maybe, you know, what happens to somebody else, you think of it's more of like a river. Like, well, they should have known. I mean, the river's going to get them sooner or later. The people that, you know, build on the beach, I mean, it's, it's going to go in the water sometime, right? You see, demo day's going to happen, whether you like it or not. Whatever's important to you is going to go away. If that's your home, uh, you can watch all these on, on, on Google. It's amazing. People are like, my whole life just sunk down in the hole. I'm like, well, if that's your whole life, that's pretty sad. Your whole life's wrapped up in your house. Your whole life's wrapped up in your job. Your whole life's wrapped up in your kids. Your whole life's wrapped up in your spouse. Your whole life's wrapped up in your job. Your whole life's wrapped up in your health. Your whole life, and you see how easy that goes away. Demo day comes, friends. Make no mistake about it. The question is, are you going to choose your demo day in Christ? Or are you going to let something else choose it for you when you don't see it coming? Because it's coming. It's coming for every person at every level. Demo day happens. The question is, are you going to choose the day or something else? You see, Jesus says it like this. No one has ever gone up into the presence of God except the one who came down from that presence, the Son of Man, me, Jesus is saying. In the same way that Moses lifted the serpent up in the desert so people could have something to see and then believe, it is necessary for the Son of Man, a name he used for himself, to be lifted up. Now, this is where it gets tricky. Again, double meaning. Lifted up 
is going to mean exalted as well as the physical lifting up. And everyone who looks up to him, trusting and expectant, will gain real eternal life. Now, this is the beauty of the gospel. There's only one person that can save us, and that's God himself. Jesus going up to heaven saves us because Jesus is the only one who came down from heaven. Does it make sense? There's no other person that claims to be God himself coming down from heaven. So when Jesus is lifted up, exalted on the cross, that is salvation because he's simply returning to God. Because he is God. So what is this, what is this serpent business? Where does that come from? Well, if you were a devout Jew, you would know this story. It comes from Numbers 21. That's a part of the Torah that you would have learned as a child. Um, the end of the story goes like this. The Lord says to Moses, make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole. Well, why would you do that? Well, because after God had already freed the Jews from Egypt after 400 years, they were out in the wilderness and they started complaining against God and against Moses about they didn't have anything to eat. Well, they did have stuff to eat. They just didn't like it. It wasn't their order. And so they start complaining about God and this and that and Moses. And so God sends these snakes, these serpents, and they bite them. At least that's how they understood it. And people were dying. And so so they go back to Moses. They say, we're sorry. We shouldn't have said bad stuff about God and about you. Do something. And so the Lord says to Moses, do this. Make a poisonous serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. If you just lift it up. So Moses does. He makes a serpent of bronze, and he puts it on a pole. And whenever a serpent bit someone, he'd lift up that pole. That person would look at the serpent of bronze, and they would live. Every Jew would know this story. And so Jesus is saying, I too am going to be lifted up. And if you look at me, when I am raised up on the cross, you will live. You'll have new life from above. See, this Greek word hypso means both lifted up and exalted, both. And the beautiful thing about the cross is that 2,000 years later, we have it in the center of our worship. Because the cross as humiliation, as the Romans meant it, is actually exaltation. When Jesus is lifted up, he's lifted up. And we gather at his feet and we say, Jesus, what would you have us do today? You are king of kings and lord of lords and you are very much alive in all the world. Or so says uh, Gail O'Day, who's given her life in New Testament and preaching. I think she's right. Only God could take the very worst that the world had and turn it and raise it and exalt himself. So, friends, you, you are in a great, great place today. If, if you don't go to church any other time this year, this is, the, this is the day to be here. I don't know why we picked daylight savings time to tell you such an important message, but we did. It's just an extra bonus for getting up early. This is the point of the entire Bible, friends. If you don't have time to read all 66 books, read this chapter. Because this is the point of what we believe and what we do and how we live. For God so loved the world, that word is cosmos, we're going to get there in a minute, that he gave his only son, only one, that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. And that trips us up because people don't understand what eternal life is. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, no, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God's in the saving business, friends, not the judging business, not the condemning business. Those who believe in Jesus are not condemned. Belief means obedience, by the way. 
But those who do not believe, are not obedient, are condemned already because they have not believed, obeyed in the name of the only Son of God. And there's a lot to unpack there. The first piece is this. Eternal life is life lived in the unending presence of God. Say that with me. Memorize this with me. Eternal life is life lived in the unending presence of God. That's what eternal life means. Life lived in the unending presence of God right now and forever. And this is the most important question you'll ever ask yourself. Do you want to? Do you really want to? Do you want eternal life? Do you want to live your life in the presence of God all the time where he never looks away? That's the, that's the first priestly blessing in Numbers, by the way. May the Lord make his face look upon you always, never away from you, always upon you. His countenance, that's what that means. He's going to have his face towards you, loving you, looking at you, blessing you, always. And the reality is, for most people, we want eternal life about 80% of the time. And there's that other 20% that we want to control. Because it makes us feel good or it gives me a sense of peace or it's worked at some level. And, and sure, I want to follow Jesus most of the time, but not all the time. But that's not what's offered, friends. It is an all or nothing proposition. Eternal life is life lived in the what kind of presence of God? Unending. Unending presence of God in this life and the next. It's not clouds and harps, friends. It's not. The Bible has nothing about clouds and harps in that way. But yet, this is the way our culture looks at it. We have another request for stairway to heaven. Any other request? Anything? Come on, that's kind of funny. For those of you old enough to know that reference. But that's not what it is. But this unending life in the presence of God is available to who? There's not a person that you will ever lock eyes with that Jesus doesn't love, hasn't given his life for, and doesn't say, look, this is available to you right now. Right now. True for every person in this room. To every person. This word cosmos, God so loved the cosmos, means those at odds with Jesus. Those who hated him. If you, if you look back on Jesus' words, he says, look, the well don't need a physician. It's the sick. It's the people that don't get it. It's the people that don't know me. Those are the people that need to know my love. It's not the people that already know that God loves them. It's those that don't. That's who I came to save. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is a word study on the word cosmos in Greek. You go later in John, in John chapter 7, it says the cosmos cannot hate you. That's the word for world. But it hates me because I testify against it that its works are evil. So God so loved the world, that thing that hates Jesus... That's what he came to save. That's, John reiterates that in John 7. If you go forward in John 15, you have it again. If the cosmos hates you, if God so loved the world, if the world hates you, beware that it hated me before it hated you, Jesus says. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own because that's what the world does. But because you don't belong to the world, I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Cosmos, cosmos, cosmos. The same word that John uses in John 3, for God so loved the world. That hates him. That kills him. That does everything bad it can do to him. Strips him, beats him, puts him on a cross, whips him, strips him. And God loves him back. In summary, this is Jesus. I'm here to save those who hate me. He shows up. 
And he's here to love and save in the unending presence of God for all time. Those who don't get it, who hate him, curse him, would kill him. That's who our Savior is. And, 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 and now, now it's pretty heavy because if we say we follow Jesus, what does that mean for us? I mean, really, what does that mean for us? It's not life as normal. It's not life per usual. You see, friend, God's purpose is to save. To save. That's, the, that's the whole point of God. That's the whole point of the cross is to save everyone who will receive him. And then it gets really pointed. Because the scripture is going to say that people love darkness rather than light. And if you don't receive them, you're condemned already. Now, make no mistake, God is not condemning you. You are condemning yourself. And we all choose it in some way, more or less, day to day. You see, we don't have to judge ourselves by hiding our evil deeds from Jesus' light. But we do. Don't we? You think about those things where you go and you shut the door when everybody else is away from the house. Or you lock the door if somebody else is in the house because you're about to do that thing that you hope that God doesn't see. And that piece of your life is unredeemed. Whatever that is. And by the way, there's no level of that. It simply is the case that in those places in your life where you refuse Jesus' light, where you refuse Jesus' love, where you refuse the power of the cross to make that right, you have judged yourself. You have not welcomed in the light of Jesus. You have not welcomed in his power. You are choosing to live in darkness. You all think I'm Baptist all of a sudden. This is real. This is real. God's not doing it to you. He's not doing it to us. He's not doing it to the world. We are choosing it in whatever form that is. And I won't list them. You know them well enough. But wherever that thing is, friends, Jesus has come. I'm here. You can live with me forever. I'm with you. I've got my face towards you. I love you. And the question for us is, how do we respond? Will we live all of our life in that light or just parts of it? And here's the really dangerous part. I don't know what happens when we're living part of it. I don't know what that looks like other than we're going to probably have a pretty difficult conversation with Jesus at the end when he's like, you knew I loved you. I gave my whole life for you. What did you do back for me? And we go, went to church one day a week. I don't know what his answer is going to be about that. He'd probably say, well, you did go daylight savings time. Kudos. I mean, I don't know. You see, the thing is, Jesus loves you. He really does. And everyone. And there's nothing you can do about it. That is the case. But if you reject it, you miss life itself. Real life, real power, real peace. Now and forever. And if you accept it, and I hope you do, your life is no longer your own. It's just not. It's not you living your life and Jesus giving you you a booster shot. When you kneel before the cross, it's his life living in you. Make no mistake about it. When you say yes to Jesus, your life is over. Your life is over. His life has begun. And it's a better life. You have to trust the demo that he's going to raise you to new life and something better, something greater, something that only God can see, something only Easter represents. It's a beautiful thing if you accept it. When you accept it, as you accept it. And so in case we missed it, 
John puts a reminder and an exclamation point on this. He says the crisis we're in is this. That God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for darkness. They didn't want God looking at them. So they went for darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Not really interested. How about you? Are, Are you interested in pleasing God? That's a really good question. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil addicted to denial, those questions, and illusion, that procrastination, hates God-like. And we don't come near it. Not in those parts of our lives. Not with those people that we can't stand. Not with those people we're not ready to see. Fearing a painful exposure. We do not want to be in God's light because we don't want to be found out. You know the safest place to be, friends? No secrets. What if you actually lived a life with nothing to hide? Man, wouldn't that be freedom? Wouldn't that be joy? Somebody says, I've got dirt on you. And you're like, yeah, everybody already knows that. And? Oh, by the way, you, you, this, this may be news to you. I hope not. This church, it's full of sinners. Worse yet, your pastors are sinners. Right? Okay, now that we've got that out in the open, let's go have some fun. Let's go live. Let's go have a life. No shame, no guilt, no worry, no darkness to hide in. We don't have to fear the exposure. God already knows everything about us, and he loves us as we are. So anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God's light so the work can be seen for the God work it is. God gets the glory, not us. There's no middle ground here, friends. We have to choose, and I want to implore you to choose now. Choose Jesus. Trust him with the resurrection. Trust him with your demo day. Trust him with your new life. Because if Jesus wasn't sent to condemn the world, neither are we. I love the way Andy said that on Friday night. He says, if Jesus wasn't sent to condemn the world, neither are we. That's exactly right. Well, why do people do that? Well, here's the, here's the, here's the secret you may not want to be said out loud. The only reason people condemn other people is because they've already condemned themselves. And they're looking for a different metric to sneak in by making themselves better than someone else. People who really know Jesus, who really know the love of God, have no need to condemn anyone. For real. Because the metric is not who's better than who. It's that we're all sinners saved by him alone. That's the good news. And so if you ever catch yourself trying to measure yourself about your darkness that is left unredeemed against someone else's darkness that's left unredeemed, you're in a bad place. I mean, let me just say it out loud. If that's your game, you have missed it completely, as the Pharisees did, as the law does. And Jesus came to save us from that. So I'll say it differently. If Jesus loved those who hated him, as followers, we do the same, don't we? How you doing on that one? Think about all the people that hate you. You're like, yep, I got a good plan to love them this week. That's good to work on. And in case none of this makes sense, you're like, man, this is so theoretical. Give me something to do. Show me. Well, I can't, but Steve Hartman can. Look something like this. We end the week with the power of the heart to change a mind. Here's Steve Hartman on the road. This neighborhood in Somerville, South Carolina, is predominantly black. 
And no one cared when Annie Cadell moved in seven years ago. I love the house. At least, according to her neighbor, Juanita Edwards, no one cared mm-hmm. at first. When she came here, she seemed to be very nice. Until? A little while later, she started putting up Confederate flags. Every morning when I would walk out to get my newspaper, that's the first thing you see. My husband stopped going to get the newspaper in the morning. And so began a very public fight. When the neighbors protested in front of her house, Annie invited counter-protesters to stand in her yard. When the neighbors put up walls on both sides of her property to block the view, Annie put up a taller flagpole. Her brazenness made international news. Once you get my hackles raised, I don't back down. I don't make no apologies. Eventually, the war settled into a stalemate of sorts. There were no more marches, no bigger walls, no taller flagpoles. Just a quiet bitterness on both sides. Until just recently, when Annie had a change of heart, quite literally. When you have a heart attack and you're being told you're not going to live very long, you're facing your mortality. I needed to clean up the messes that I made by being so stubborn. And I have asked anyone with an earshot to forgive me. She started with one of her fiercest critics, director of the local community resource center, Lewis Smith. And she said, I have decided to take down the flag. I said, huh? I I, I couldn't believe it. I was in disbelief. I went and hugged her. Somehow God touched her heart. Not long after, she presented him with the flag. And Miss Annie, we thank you. Today, a South Carolina flag flies in its place, and Annie is hopeful the walls will be the next to go. She's already getting waves from the neighbors and enjoying her new perspective on the world. If all species of birds can get along, why can't we? Can we get people to be less stubborn without the heart attack part? That would be lovely, but (laughs) sometimes it takes a serious action to happen to you before you see your actions on others. Annie says before, she only saw the Confederate flag through her eyes as a way to honor relatives who fought for the South. But now, she says, she cares more about her living neighbors than her dead relatives. You don't feel like you're dishonoring them now? No, I'm not. I think I've done more honor for them now than I've done in my whole life. And with that, our divided country inches a little closer together. Steve Hartman, on the road, in Somerville, South Carolina. When Jesus came to earth as the Jewish Messiah, everyone expected him to raise the Jewish flag. And he cared more about loving his neighbors, his living neighbors, than honoring the ancestry of his people. So much so that he would say to you and me and to everyone who would ever follow him, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Golden rule, forgive, pray those that persecute you. And friends, and this, this is where it gets really important. If you find yourself comparing your sins to someone else's sins and condemning others because you find their sin more offensive than your sin, just know you're in a really bad place. 
a very dangerous place. Because that is not what any of this is about. None of that is on the table. What is on the table is that Jesus Christ saves all sinners everywhere, all the time, or he doesn't. And if you fall for that other game, what that means is there are unredeemed pieces in you that you feel shame and guilt about. And you're rather than owning that and bringing that to light and being fully redeemed and demolished by God, you're pointing at someone else so you can say, look at them, look at them, aren't they worse? But guess what? In that game, nobody wins. Nobody's in. Nobody. So if you find yourself in that place where you're tempted to, to try to point out other people's sins and condemn them, just know that doesn't have anything to do with Christianity. Not anything. Because God so loved the world, those that hated him, there was plenty to point out if he wanted to. That's not what he did. He came to save. So our action point is this. What we do need to be serious about is to bring to light whatever it is that God needs to demolish in our life. That's what we need to concentrate on. The whole log, twig thing, that's another sermon for another day. It fits. What will you bring to light for God to demolish in you? That's where new life happens. What new life might Jesus have for you? Imagine that. If you actually were to offer up your your job, your family, your life, your whole life, not just part of it, what might God do? And then the most important question of all, will you welcome new life, not on your terms, but on Jesus' terms? That's what it is for him to be your Lord and Savior. To say, demolish my life, you rebuild it, I trust you with the future. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my family, my finances, my home, all of it. Whatever he says goes. Will you welcome new life on Jesus' terms? That is the good news of Jesus Christ. I beg you, implore you to accept it. It is the best choice you will ever make in your life. In this life and the next. In the unending presence of the good and mighty loving Savior that knows you and loves you perfectly. Say yes. Amen. Amen.